welcome to episode 27 of Is This Democracy, the podcast where we discuss the ongoing conflict over how much democracy and for whom there should be in America. My name is Thomas Zimmer. I'm a historian at Georgetown University. I'm Liliana Mason. I'm a political scientist at the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. And Lily, um, we are back. Back. Um, it, it's been a minute. We last recorded in early June. So what was Oof. supposed to be um, just a summer break turned into a four-month absence. Um, we should maybe talk a little bit about what happened. And, you know, are we just being lazy bums uh, who can't be bothered to record? What? So what, I don't know, like we're probably not going to do uh, a full account of where we've been over the past few months, but, but maybe a little bit to just um, give people an idea of what happened there why again i don't i don't think we thought we wouldn't be no. recording until october so <laughs> so what happened uh, so on my end as the kids get older summer is always like more and more uh it requires a lot more adult intervention in the sense of driving places and traveling um so there were multiple trips to drop kids off and pick them up at at, at a variety of summer camps uh, we did many family trips. I was traveling like crazy all summer, uh, for a variety of giving talks, going to conferences, et cetera. Um, and, and then the semester started, which was extremely busy. I've also been traveling this, this fall and I've spent the last three weeks having COVID. So, um, I'm finally coming out of that. It, it's, uh, there's been a lot of hurdles that have just erupted, I think, in front of us. It's honestly just life intervened, right? It's, it's, um, I think, I mean, people, people probably know this, like we have professional obligations, right? Contrary to what some people may think, if you work as a professor at a university, you don't get to simply take a long vacation in the summer between terms. Um, that's when the actual research or the book writing or whatever is supposed to happen. If it happens at all, it happens, you know, in those months because it's, yeah, it's certainly not happening during the semester, not if you have, I don't know, if you teach and, and if you take that part of the job somewhat seriously. Um, and again, we we both have families, uh, we have kids, and and like for me, summer just means a long break with no childcare support. Um, so that, <laughs> that already takes away uh, just a lot of time. And Every day. Yeah. And then again, like there's, there's just stuff and it, it, it just didn't quite come together. I think I, I don't want to sound defensive about it. I think, I think I can say probably for both of us, um, we are sorry that it took so long, right? Yeah. I mean, sorry also to have missed, missed out on chiming in on a lot of interesting stuff that's happened. Maybe not so sorry about not having to chime in on <laughs> some of the stuff that's, that's happened. I want to say right off the bat, a big thanks to listeners who have showing a lot of support in, in different forms. We've received nice messages and very encouraging messages, people telling us that they missed the pod and are looking forward to getting the podcast back and also actually still listening. Um, people kept downloading episodes, which is great. Like not in like big numbers, but in significant numbers, people are still listening to older episodes. And some kind people even left great ratings and reviews while we were gone, um, which again, I'm, I'm really grateful for that it, it actually it, it actually means uh, a lot that people seem to care about this you and i just talking into microphones <laughs> all right so uh today we're not going to just recap the summer right that doesn't make much sense we're not going to go through week by week august first week of august um we have decided we want to start with a reflection on the events in israel the terrorist attack on israel last saturday and the ensuing sort of israel hamas war and reflection really means think out loud about what we as people who are not experts on this topic can and should say or should not say, maybe. And then we'll turn to our own beat, so to speak, and tackle the latest round of speaker drama in the House, 
talk about what, if anything, we have learned from the ouster of Kevin McCarthy as speaker after, I think, 269 days. Before we do all that, you know, since it's been so long and since we might hopefully find a few new listeners maybe along the way that start back up with us, we should maybe reaffirm what this podcast is all about, what people can expect from us. Um, so, Lily, like, what is what is it that we're trying to do here, actually? What to you is the value, maybe, or the, the added value that we can ho- hopefully offer to people who are interested in um, U.S. politics? We've definitely designed the podcast so that it is not a current events podcast. We are not explaining what the current events are. Often we will riff off of current events in order to talk more broadly about American democracy and what type of democracy we think we should have in this country. And uh, with a with a very explicit normative commitment to pluralistic multi-ethnic democracy and what types of behaviors, what types of institutions, you know, what what types of events have, have, you know, have effects either positively or negatively on whether or not we are making progress towards becoming a more fully representative multi-ethnic democracy and what are the forces of resistance against that. So how can we evaluate the, the sort of state of our democracy at any given point, understanding that there are push, you know, there's a push and pull between becoming more inclusive and going back to a time when we were less inclusive and making that really explicit. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, the, the fundamental reality of American politics today is that the you know, the fault lines in the struggle over democracy, over whether or not the democratic experiment should actually continue or it's whether or not, you know, th- this country should actually become what it's often promised to be, which is that sort of egalitarian, multiracial, pluralistic democracy, those fault lines they map onto the conflict between the two major parties. And that means that the struggle over democracy really defines the political conf- confrontation in, in basically all areas. Even if we sometimes, I think, like to pretend we're doing something else, we're having just discussions over, I don't know, taxes or wealth, social welfare or regulations or whatever. Uh, we're really having a discussion over who gets to participate as equals in the political process, who gets to define what does and does not count as America or American who gets to be at the top in, in this sort of um, society. And and again, I think that's, we we feel like that was sort of almost a year ago when we started this whole thing that it is worth looking at the, um, the political and social and cultural conflicts of our moment through the lens of this ongoing struggle over democracy. And also that, you know, coming at it from the, having the perspective of a historian and a, and a contemporary political scientist, I think is a really helpful, I find it helpful when you can talk more about history and, and my field of study is generally like, what are the American attitudes right now? Um, and what are the, what are the challenges in the electorate? And what is our psychology pushing us towards or away from? And I think having both the historical and the, and the contemporary political science aspects are really helpful. Yeah. It, it's neither a history podcast, nor is it a political science podcast, right? right? I mean, this is not, we're not discussing, oh, did you see the latest in the so-and-so journal or whatever? But but we're obviously trying to make use of the, I don't know, the, the professional training and the expertise that we have. And again, try to provide that sort of hopefully helpful big picture um, interpretation or, or assessment. In a sense, basically what we're doing is we scan the news and sort of the latest developments, but we, we try to, again, provide a big picture reflection on how that all relates to that overarching struggle. I should probably say that the plan going forward is that every other week, um, you and I uh, will come on with the quote-unquote regular podcast. Um, so that, that's 
probably going to be a mostly bi-weekly thing. And then in the weeks in between, as often as is feasible, um, we want to present guest conversations um, like the ones we've already done with wonderful people who come in and to bring their own expertise maybe on topics and areas that we can go really deep um, and that we that you and I couldn't by ourselves. Yeah. And so the plan is to do at least one of those per month in addition to the quote-unquote regular podcast. So again, overall, about two regular podcasts every other week per month, and then plus at least one of those bonus bonus guest conversations, if, if you will. That's that's probably what we're going to try to do. But again, there's stuff happening. Like This is not our job, <laughs> actually. Um, this is not what pays the bills. Um, so, you know, that stuff, sometimes it might prove just impossible, not feasible to, to stick with that schedule, but that is what settled on hopefully, hopefully doing. That just about covers it. Shall we get into it? Sure. Before we get into US politics, we we want to reflect a little bit on the situation in Israel. If you listen to a podcast about politics, any podcast about politics, you you obviously have decided that you're interested in those things and stay up to date. So you know about the, the horrifying terrorist attack carried out by Hamas on Israel on Saturday. That was October 7. Um, over a thousand Israelis were killed. Most of them civilians massacred in their houses. Um, um, over, un, I think, about 150 people or so were abducted, brought into the Gaza Strip as hostages. It was the largest mass murder of Jewish people in one day since the Holocaust. In reaction, Israel has declared war on Hamas. Um, it has so far, I think I just read in the New York Times, has carried out about 2,000 airstrikes on the Gaza Strip, a territory that is about, if I'm not mistaken, about twice as big as Washington, D.C., um, and currently home over to over 2 million people, half of, half of which are children, so people under the age of 18. Gaza has been occupied by Israel for decades. Um, it has also been under blockade um, for 16 years now. And now Israel has declared to not even let food and water into the Gaza Strip. And again, I, I should say we're recording this on Thursday, October 12th. So obviously things are very much in motion. And what we say is based on what we know right now. So um, Lily, I have not, and I believe you haven't either, talked about this publicly so far. Um, and yet we have decided we should do that now. So why... Haven't we done that so far? And why have we been, I think it's fair to say, reluctant to do it? And but we're doing it anyway now. Why? Like what is sort of what is sort of the I don't know, the rationale for you know talking about it with, with a certain reluctance? Yeah. I mean, I think that the basic truth is that it is this story is everywhere. Um, because it is, you know, it it is about horrific details and massacre of civilians. Um in both places. And it is, it, so it's, it's impossible to do, I think, do a podcast about politics and just pretend that it's not happening. Um, at the same time, neither you or I is remotely an expert in this. We don't generally talk about foreign policy. Um, we don't talk about events happening outside of the U S very often, if at all. And, and it is of, of all of the political issues, you know, it is probably the most fraught uh, to talk about. It is a very, very deeply difficult topic, and there are no clear answers. There is always misery and suffering. And to the extent that we probably, we should definitely all believe that civilians should not be, should not be murdered um, for political goal, for achieving political goals. Uh, it's it's a it's an absolute tragedy, and it's going to get worse. So, 
um, you know, this has been an, an environment and even just like sort of looking around at the ways that people have been discussing this, it is, it is so divisive. It's so difficult for people to make, um, any kind of, you know, normative statements or, or taking one side or the other, um, without getting massive backlash. And, and it's understandable because it is, it's not, it's not, it's not that it's, a First of all, it's not an easy topic to talk about. And second of all, the reason it's not easy is because we have very, very strong positions that are in absolute direct opposition to each other. Um, so it's not, it's, 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 I, I don't think we can analyze the events. I don't think we can talk about what should or should not happen, but, but we should admit that it is happening and it's, it, it's something that is affecting America too. To me, one of the most annoying or insulting even tendencies of online discourse is this idea that if you don't talk about something, it must mean that you don't care, or that you are even that you even condone condone whatever terrible thing is going on in the world. Um, that happens, right? So people, absolutely, I've been, I've, I've had people like come at me over the past few days. Oh, like you still haven't like I don't know uh, posted about this on whatever social media platform. So that must mean you at the very least don't care or or worse even like may, maybe you think this was a good thing that happened or whatever like no it it just means that some people are not in the tech industry and like again as a general rule of thumb i i tried it look if you've ever looked at any of my social media you know that i'm i'm not like i talk about i i say my opinion on a lot of stuff but i believe it or not i try to stick to the general rule if i don't have something of value to offer at least i think i have something of value to offer then i'm not going to say something i'm sometimes quite often actually listening learning and thinking is better than just offering takes right and so again this this is sort of my general my, my general reaction um so so why address it at all then i again like i i've been asked a lot um and i think there is a um a, a very understandable desire to talk about these things and and maybe also hear us talk about these things um and then i've i've done this a few times this week when when people again i'm talking about in in every day sort of pick up at school right and people know that i'm a historian or i i talk about politics and then they say like you know what do you make of this all, all of this and, and then i say oh you know this is not my expertise i i am actually a historian look but yes but we have a public platform um you know however public big, platform. <laughs> yeah no we do i mean how, however big it is right but we but we yeah. do and we we do reserve the right to opine on stuff right mm -hmm. and so i think again like we can't pretend to be experts on the region or the conflict or international relations. Um, but I think as far as how this is being discussed in the United States and how it has entered U.S. politics, I think we we can maybe make some observations or at least say what our general thoughts have been. So again, th this is would be again we have not talked about this you and I. Um, so I, I would be interested to hear like in, in in terms of the way this has been discussed in in the U.S. Um, is there anything that stood out to you? Anything that you found particularly either interesting or, I don't know, particularly problematic or anything that's worth sort of bringing up? Um, well, I'm, at first I would just say in terms of like things I've observed in my life, you know, this is, this is the type of, of event that, that causes undergraduates to organize and have arguments with each other. Um, yeah. Yeah, outside of official avenues, even you know, there are a protest from from the Israeli side and a protest from the Palestinian side, and these are all 
pretty young people um, without a moderator and 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 having a very very uh, vigorous, I guess I'll say, conversation with each other that that often is not actually very productive. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it seems that a lot of these conversations, it's really hard to get a sense that we're in a place where we can even as a country, you know, argue about this because, because the, re, the, the sort of the, or, the orientation, um, of the two sides that are arguing is so completely different, right? They're coming from a vi- completely different set of assumptions, a completely different, sometimes completely different set of truths. Um, and it, and it, it actually reminds me somewhat of, of the more difficult conversations we have in American politics on other, on other issues. Um, one thing I've been noticing is, you know, little stories here and there about, um, you know, people who are, you know, Palestine, U.S. Palestinians saying that they're reluctant to speak out because um, they're afraid of legal and professional backlash or even placing some of their, you know, family members overseas at risk. Um, some people, you know, saying extremely divisive things and actually, you know, having job opportunities removed uh and and seeing really and you know corporate institutions and and businesses taking very firm stands, um, usually on the side of of Israel and and all of which is it makes sense to me. Like each of these things, I can understand the motivations of the people doing it. It's but it is not a pro, it's, these are usually not very productive conversations, and it, it it's painful to watch you know reasonable people have such such deep and 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 and, uh, and sort of complete um, differences that and and they're over really tragic facts and events and it's like i said you know the we have i think most most reasonable people agree that that we shouldn't kill civilians for any reason but once somebody starts killing civilians, then somebody else wants to keep killing civilians, and there's sort of a tit for tat situation that goes on, which, by the way, is not um, not exactly something that the Geneva Conventions <laughs> encourage. But once you're in this type of conflict, it's very difficult to get out, and and it's and even so, you know, thousands of miles away from it, where we are, the feelings are so strong, and people's opinions and and underlying beliefs are so deep that it's a it's just a very brutal topic. So I, I've been trying to um, assess the landscape of what I find positions that it's worth that are worth of entertaining and grappling with and positions that to me are out of outside of the bounds of sort of plausibility. There's two positions that for me again are not worth entertaining. One and I'll I'll start on the left. And it's got I want to be clear, it's not the left, right? It's clearly like a, a minority position on the left, but there is a, I guess you could call it a sort of a anti-colonial left, um, sort of a self-proclaimed anti-colonial left. And among among those people from that corner, um, there there have been people arguing that this was justified, that the Hamas attack on Israel was justified, or they call it a military strategy, or they they make grand analogies to sort of past anti-colonial struggle and against uh, settler colonialism to sort of you know legitimize it. And I find that analytically bizarre and morally just abhorrent. Um, look, whatever path leads you to not being able to condemn or even actively justifying the massacring of civilians, of children in their homes, it's just a terrible, terrible, terrible path. And all I know is that I want nothing to do with you. Again, this is not the left. 
um, the, the, the vast majority of people on the left have been clear in condemning this sort of act of terrorism. But we need to be clear that this position exists. And I think it, it is actually a betrayal of what left-wing politics should be, as it, as it should be rooted in sort of egalitarianism and humanitarianism. And that's, there's just no, there should be no path from there to, and that's why it is okay as a whatever strategy you want to call that, to go into people's homes and, and kill children. On the right, I mean... The level of bloodlust that some of these people have displayed is just it's dangerous and it's disgusting. Lindsey Graham has been on Fox News the whole time. First, he first he said he wants to go to war with Iran right away. Awesome. Um, and I think now the latest I've seen is he says, we are in a religious war. And he's not ashamed to admit it. Like, okay, man. Um, he proudly declared that, right? It's utterly, utterly disqualifying. So I'm, I'm just hoping that, again, I'm hoping that most of the people who listen to us are not... You know, I'm not re- are, are recognizing this as not positions that are worth properly entertaining. One thing that I'm grappling or struggling a little bit with is I, I've seen quite a few people, um, mostly from on the left, broadly speaking, making the argument that they this sort of general political climate reminds them and, and the way they, the the, the way sort of the discussion is going reminds them of the aftermath of 9/11 in this sort of gearing up for war and it's sort of the again the the militarism the bloodlust the also the 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 um uh the, the relative the the restrictions on what is still considered acceptable as public speech and and what is not i'm i was not here in the aftermath of 9/11 i was over in germany i was a dumb teenager not caring about anything so i'm i i cannot i don't really feel um sort of able to speak to that but maybe does the mainstream political debate remind you of a sort of post 9-11 political climate or is that is that is that i i i i don't see that but but maybe i'm maybe i'm just missing it no i disagree with that i mean i was here (laughs) um and i was in new york i lived in new york at the time um uh fully witnessed everything i still remember the smell um in yeah. in New York and uh to me this does not feel like the aftermath of 9/11 at all um partly because 9/11 was frightening for us for Americans right yeah um it happened to us and um and at the very least in 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 New York it 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 completely transformed the yeah. entire culture of New York City yeah um we were all you know, take worrying about each other's feelings on the subway and like apologizing to each yeah. other. And like, there were missing pictures everywhere and, yeah. um, people were being quiet, you know, like it was just a weird for New York. It was a very noticeable and terrifying shift that we could all feel. Yeah. And the governmental reaction was, it's just seemed stupid, you know, like yeah. at least from, from the perspective of somebody living in New York, the, the immediate the immediate reaction of of you know the war in Afghanistan seemed kind of make like it sort of made sense, but like yeah. then the Iraq war didn't make any sense, and yeah. um, and and it none of it felt like exactly you know it 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 felt much more like a like a traumatic event yeah. than than like a foreign affairs thing that we can watch from abroad and and like a pine over without involving our own sense of safety or security. Um, it, it was just much more personal, I think. Yeah. Um, but, but it, but I, I do think that there, are, you know, there might be a similarity between New Yorkers after nine eleven and 
um, Jewish and Palestinian diaspora in the United States mm-hmm. right now, right? So right. Fe- my f- there are there are populations that feel this much more personally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I'm not in either of those populations, so for me, it's not feeling that way. Right. But it is definitely possible yeah. that for people, especially who have family in those places, that they are extremely traumatized and are are trying to work through this sense of threat and right. and fear and animosity i i i don't think i say this often but i i'm in this case i've actually found the the mainstream coverage um the of of these events mostly to be better than i expected and mostly actually pretty decent um and what i mean by that is i, I feel like if you look at the new york times and the washington post and i look again like We've been plenty critical of, of sort of mainstream political coverage, right? But but in this case, I feel like there has been an attempt at at nuance and and context and a willingness to let two different things be true at the same time, right? So if you, I, I remember specifically, was it two days ago, maybe three days ago, there was a in the New York Times there was a graphic that showed casualties in the conflict between Israel and and the Palestinians, and it and it and it made very clear how much higher the casualties among Palestinians have been over. Well, the past few decades, right? Not just in this specific instance, but over the past few decades. And again, I, I feel like a few years back, there was a time when this would have caused an outrage because it would have seen as sort of anti-Israel or anti-Semitic even. Um, and I think what's 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 what much of the not everything, of course not, but what, what much of the mainstream discu- um, sort of coverage has actually avoided one big mistake, and that is not distinguishing between the Israeli government on the one hand and the actions of the Israeli state regarding the Palestinians, that's on the one hand, and the people of Israel on the other. And then also distinguishing between Hamas and the Palestinians. Um, that's exactly the kind of distinction that Lindsey Graham does not want to make, right? And he wants us to just, just look at that. It's all Hamas. It's all terrorists. Let's let's bomb them to hell. And I, But I feel like that's not been the tenor of the of the uh, the mainstream discourse and and that I think has been somewhat encouraging to me and and by the way I, I want to say what's actually a really good guideline in terms of how to discuss this is the discussion in Israel if if you look at the published opinion in Israel and like major Israeli newspapers there's been sharp critique of Netanyahu and his government and his politics his escalation of the conflict in the recent past um there, there has been none of the like, less. Yes, we are with Netanyahu. No questions asked. Like, let's go kill them all. There's been none of that. Quite the opposite, actually. And I think that should be a reminder to us. Like, if they, in this moment of pain and anger, can muster the courage and the determination to not get swept away in this, right? And and still, again, look at context and look at how do how did we get to this point? Then we should also be able to do that, right? And then we should we should ask this of ourselves. And by the way, I'm also saying this because in the German the German debate, which I've been sort of somewhat following over the past few days, has been an absolute nightmare, an absolute right. nightmare. Absolutely no distinction between the Netanyahu government and the again the actions of the Israeli state and the Israeli people. Absolutely no like regard for context and how you get there. And, and it's, it, it's been, it's been a disaster, like absolutely disastrous. And I, I found the, I found the Americans of mainstream discourse, um, a lot more, again, a lot saner and a lot of more honest and, and, and sort of reflecting. And I, I, I'm, I'm somewhat in, encouraged by that actually. There are a number of critiques of the media that emerged during 
you know, the invasion and continued occupation of Ukraine by the Russians, that, you know, we're, we're paying so much attention as a nation to Ukraine because it's a bunch of white people who are being, yeah. who are being attacked. Yeah. Um, and, and that we, we do tend to kind of minimize, minimize catastrophes when they happen to brown people yeah. um, and, and suffering and, and all, you know, and death. And, um, and I do wonder whether some of this is 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 you know a reflection back on you know would we would we have cared so much about the Ukrainians if you know if they hadn't been you know largely white and um and and often and often that critique actually came from coverage of the Middle East right it mm. came from the the perception that in the Middle East we you know we we care less about people yep. who have darker skin. Um, and so it's possible that some of this actually is a is a reaction to those yeah. critiques um, that came that came from the the Ukraine uh, war. Yeah, I I want to highlight one thing I read. I don't know if you saw this in in Slate. Emily Tamkin wrote a piece that I think the title was was What does it mean to stand with Israel? And I think that would that was um, had sort of a big impact on me because I think that that really to me is the key question now. Um, I think. Like again, standing with Israel, if that means reaffirming the right of Israel to defend itself, absolutely. Like absolutely yes. Also, if if that means insisting on the right of the Israeli people to live and not be victimized and not be terrorized, absolutely. But then beyond that, like th there's been a lot of this. Like we stand with Israel, like no matter what we stand with, like a lot of sort of again of the initials of political reactions from governments you know, all over the quote-unquote West. And I think as an immediate direction, it's, it's it's probably totally understandable. But now, like, what does that mean? What does that entail? And what does it not entail? And I, and, and I, I would hope, I would hope that it doesn't entail standing with collective punishment of civilians, that it doesn't entail standing with starving 2 million people who can't go anywhere, because that is by any definition, and certainly by sort of current international law, a war crime. And more generally, I think it shouldn't entail, again, this general sense of standing with Israel, it shouldn't entail unqualified support for the current Israeli government, which, again, even the New York Times, not exactly a crazy uh, lefty, you know, crazy radical lefty outlet, even the New York Times just called, and I quote, the, the current uh, Israeli government, quote, the most far-right, ultra-nationalist and religiously conservative government in Israeli history, which is entirely correct. Um, so again, remember, like there is a global conflict that certainly defines the political situation in all quote-unquote Western democracies. And that is over, on the one hand, multiracial pluralistic democracy, and on the other, a sort of authoritarian ethno-religious nationalism. Um, and in that struggle, Netanyahu is not on the right side. He's very much on the wrong side um, from our point of view. Um, and I think, again, the discussion within Israel is saying all those things and is not ignoring those things, right, in those contexts. And, and again, I think so, so we shouldn't we shouldn't either. Yeah. Okay. Is is that about what we <laughs> want to say on that right now? Yeah. Probably. I think yeah. That's as far as we're going. Here Great. Today. So we'll, we'll leave it at that. Um, again, like to be very clear, this is not an a uh, an all encompassing. This is everything you need to know about this conflict. Absolutely mm -hmm. not. But this is sort of some thoughts. Um, maybe some again some 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 general what to make of all of this and maybe just some of the things that have gone through our minds and now let's turn to some more fun topics <laughs> one thing we're gonna have to talk about in terms of american politics is what is going on in the house of representatives uh as of this recording kevin mccarthy is no longer speaker 
Uh, Patrick McHenry is McCarthy's designated temporary speaker while the House Republicans have to choose a permanent replacement for McCarthy, although who knows how permanent considering McCarthy's term was quite short. McCarthy was voted out, first of all, because of a rule that he agreed to when he became speaker, which is that anybody can vacate the House speaker, the speaker's seat um, with one person voting, and that person was Matt Gates. And he was mad that McCarthy had um, used Democratic votes to pass a continuing resolution, basically to not shut down the government for a month. Uh, it wasn't really even very long. And it's it's like 45 days or something. 45 days, right. And it's still at risk of ending quite soon. And we don't have any way of knowing whether we're going to be able to do anything about it. Um, And I think that that's, this is worth a tiny point right here, just like putting a pin in the fact that Matt Gaetz's opposition was the fact that there was any bipartisanship whatsoever in the House vote. That's what made him decide to remove the speaker entirely, a historic motion that has not happened in American history, remove the speaker entirely because some Democrats (laughs) voted for the thing that he proposed. That alone is, you know, pretty pathological in terms of our politics, but, but in general, moving, you know, moving beyond that, um, McCarthy has now said he's not going to he said a while ago, he's not going to try to run again for speaker. This is clearly dividing the Republican members of the House. A lot of them are angry that McCarthy was removed. It only took eight votes. This is another part of the problem. Um, McCarthy was able to be removed with eight votes because the uh, the House, the Republican House majority is so tiny that you actually only need five people, five Republicans to not vote for somebody and they won't become speaker. So it will be very difficult to replace McCarthy with anyone because even five people defecting is enough to 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 remove the threat to basically not meet the threshold that Republicans need to meet in order to approve um, approve a speaker. Currently, Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan seem to be the two front runners for the uh, for the speaker seat. Scalise was was approved. Um, by a majority of Republicans, um, but not enough to elect him um, to, to, to be put forward in the nomination to, to be voted upon, but there is not enough support for him to actually become the next speaker. Uh, Jim Jordan is being kind of unclear right now. He's saying that he would support Scalise, but he also wants to be the speaker. And it's unclear exactly which of them is actually trying to be the reasonable one. Steve Scalise has given talks in front of white supremacists. Jim Jordan famously ignored sexual abuse uh, when he was at Ohio State, rampant sexual abuse. Um, And so neither of them is like the guy that, you know, you would think of as like the perfect leader for one of our two political parties in the United States. And and neither of them has enough votes to to become speaker. It is unclear whether anyone in in the House has any Republican has enough votes to become speaker. Certainly not a Democrat. Um, we are looking at a future where government will just stop. The House can't do anything right now. It can't support Israel, for example. It can't decide on another continuing resolution so the government doesn't shut shut down in November. Uh, it you know it's they're paralyzed. And so this is this situation where we're kind of seeing what happens when this very extremist 
group of Republicans that has has really been elected into our government because of uh, this kind of MAGA uh, movement within the Republican Party that says we don't compromise, we don't work with other people, we want what we want, and we're going to get a hundred percent of it, or we're or we're taking the ball and we're going home. And a lot of Republicans actually now are starting to complain about the fact that you know government requires compromise. Like you have to you have to be able to give something in order to get the thing that you want. And these guys don't understand that. And these are quotes that we're hearing from Republicans in in Congress uh, who are who are complaining that these guys don't seem like they get how a government is supposed to work. Uh, so, which I think is another accurate observation from within the Republican caucus. So, um, so that's where we are right now. That's where we are right now. Uh, there is no speaker. It is unclear if there will be a speaker. Um, it's possible that this will, uh, you know, push our government into crisis or closure or some, you know, worse thing. Um, but let's, yeah. So let's just start there. I want to say just for the record that this is not adequately described as a confrontation between a moderate majority and a sort of radical fringe. The the eight people who voted against McCarthy, Matt Gates and his allies, they're definitely sort of radical, radical, radical sort of extreme figures. But there are a lot more radical extreme figures in the Republican House caucus. Like, for instance, uh, both Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert voted with McCarthy, right? So they're, they, they, the, the, the fault line here is not, oh, doesn't this mean there's only eight radical extremists? No, on this particular question, there was only eight of them, right? But there's, there's, there's a lot more of them. I've been asking myself, have we learned anything new from this about the Republican Party. And I, I don't really think so, but I think it is a reminder of a few important things. And to me, the most important thing is that this is a reminder of how the, the really the defining the defining um, position in on the American right right now is that Democrats are the enemy and you do not collaborate with the enemy. That is the line that Kevin McCarthy ultimately crossed to avoid a government shutdown. And for some Republican elected officials, and crucially for the base, there can be no justification for that. I mean, by the way, you'd think that McCarthy, uh, you know, did enough to prove that he's not exactly all in on bipartisanship, right? This is not a like a moderate uh, guy always cozying up with the Democrats. Like he voted against certifying the 2020 election after January 6th. He sabotaged the January 6th commission every every chance he got. He started impeachment against Joe Biden. He also like is com- was completely unwilling to, to unwilling to offer any concessions for Democrats to actually work with him, right? And afterwards he's been trashing the Democrats, like mm-hmm. putting all the blame on them. So like again, this is not some oh like you know, again, like this is not McCarthy was not a um, uh, a paragon of bipartisanship, and oh my God, we're going to miss him so much. But but still, it wasn't enough. He didn't in this one instance. He didn't hold the line against again what the American right is. The only thing they're consistent on is we the Democrats to them or the left more generally, they're not just political opponents. It's to to the to Republicans, that, that's become dogma on the American right. Democrats are a fundamentally illegitimate, un-American faction that must not be allowed to govern under any circumstance. And I think this is a, a, a really stark reminder of, 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 you know, of the fact that this is where this party has, this, this is where this party is right now. Yeah. Um, 
Politico had an interesting piece last weekend on this topic where they interviewed 14 experts. I got to speak with them for this. Um, the title of the article is what is broken in American politics is the Republican party. Yeah. Um, Cause largely every single one, almost every single one of these experts um, basically agreed on that one point. Not a collection of crazy lefty hippies, by the way. No, no, <laughs> no. There were, yeah, there were some real, real conservative people also in there. And very established. All of those people that, you know, that were asked by Poli and Politico also, not a super out there, crazy lefty no. outlet. <laughs> no, right. Politico. Yeah. Um, and they, yeah, they, ch I mean, I think that they choose people, they choose people who are not just going to say the most radical things. Yeah. Um, and, and so one of the things that, that I sort of took away from this is that the, the, this sort of extremist fringe faction of the Republican party that is growing in the house and is now large enough because of their small majority to actually really block things from happening. Yeah. Um, is that they 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 didn't get there and become fringe. They were elected because they were fringe, um, and they're and they're really reflective of this reactionary element in on the right in American politics that was energized by and attracted to Trump in particular, and he really acted as a lightning rod to attract people who didn't like the idea of a pluralistic democratic project, yep. uh, and and so were willing to break rules and offend people and do things that were not considered to be like mature traditional politics, um, in order to get what they wanted. Um, and in addition to that, there, because of this kind of orientation towards radical fringe, a lot of them are mainly focused on just getting attention. Um, they're not very interested in governing. In fact, I think a lot of these people would love it if the government just disappeared, you right. know, like a lot of them say government is, it's too bloated. There's, there's too much in it. It's trying to do too many things and therefore we shouldn't have it. Right. Like the, the types of things that they don't want to pay for are really pretty basic things in, in American life. Um, including things like healthcare and cancer research and you know uh, hurricane hurricane notifications things that are that are not very expensive but also are um, in, in the large scheme but also are extremely important um, and they're really people like Matt Gates I think is a great example of this is like just looking for just looking for attention glamour um, he wants the news media to be paying attention to him he's not he what he would rather do is get attention by by dividing our government and dividing people within the United States rather than try to work on something that could actually help people's lives um and and you know and our and our media tend to play into this as well where they understand that people don't uh, pay attention to news media unless it's telling them about something bad that's happening and that's that's reflective of human nature. I mean, we, you know, we evolved to the, the example is if, you know, if you mistake uh, a stick for a snake, then you might be like, Oh God. And, and then embarrassed. But if you mistake a snake for a stick, then you're dead, right? It bites <laughs> you when you're dead. So we're, we're designed to pay attention to the possibly threatening things more than we pay attention to the unthreatening things. And and news media in contemporary politics are are using that knowledge about us to to encourage us to to look at politics through a lens of conflict and us versus them and who's fighting who and uh, our politicians know this too so the politicians know if they get in a fight then they'll get news coverage and the news media are very happy to provide that 
um, because it makes more people click on the stories and they get more money, et cetera, et cetera. So the, you know, we sort of have this perfect storm of really bad motivations among fringe Republicans, um, which increasingly is like, you know, a larger and larger percentage of the party, um, that is paired with really bad motivations for, for news media to, to cover the most divisive topics. And what that, you know, then brings into our politics is, is, are some really nasty, um, not only motivations, but nasty inclinations among the people who have been elected from these places who really don't like the project of an increasingly pluralistic democracy. And they're, and they're willing to make lots of noises and undermine our processes and disrupt our government in order to push that vision forward. And it's all playing out, um, again, against the background of a, of a base that's been conditioned to be very receptive to all this kind of this kind of rhetoric that you know, oh, Democrats are the enemy. We cannot we cannot have someone as speaker who accepts any sort of you know cooperation with the Democrats because like, again, like this this is what conservative rhetoric, elite conservative rhetoric, has been all about since the formation of modern conservatism in the 1950s. It's always been all about look, it's it's five minutes to twelve. Um, the country is about to go down. The end of America is near. There's the enemy within. And again, you can't if if you condition your base to believe that, then you can't, at some point, it gets really, really hard to just turn around and say, oh, um, but also we'll totally work with them on this or that, uh, you know, policy or, or whatever bill or whatever, right? So at some point you, you, this is, this is a very, very much a sort of self-made thing, right? Um, I want to just say one thing about the, the, the Gates side of the, the Matt Gates side of this, who, like there's a lot of talk about oh, these are just chaos agents and, and nihilists and all that, and I think that's honestly large, largely correct when it comes to someone like Matt Gates, right? Um, but I think that might lead people to underestimate the the kind of danger that emanates from from this situation because it, it might be tempting to look at this and this of completely chaotic, like unprecedentedly chaotic infighting. Um, Again, they, they they needed 15 tries to make him speaker in January, and then boom, he's gone. Um, and and you might conclude from that that these people, no matter their intentions, will ultimately be stopped by their own incompetence. And I, I think that overlooks the fact that they don't need to be an effective governing machine. From the perspective of the larger political, sort of the larger reactionary political project, chaos in the House is all they need to just sabotage any attempt at halting the slide into authoritarianism right? because that's coming from the states that's coming from mostly the republican-led states it's coming from the supreme court um and and what you would need ideally is the sort of a functioning you know functioning bodies in washington who can who can try to do something against this a functioning federal government that can try to again halt and stop this slide into authoritarianism but again if you have this sort of house caucus that's entirely uh, enough to just make that impossible. And so in that sense, right, um, I think it's it's totally true that they're not ever going to gel into like an effective governing machine, these people. That's not happening. But, you know, they don't have any discernible interest in tackling the country's most urgent problems via public policy. They're not interested in public policy. Most of them are entirely happy to paralyze the government. Again, as long as and unless, unless they are in full control on, on all levels. And, and if, if they were in, in control on, in, on all levels, then would, they would absolutely use the government, right? They're not like, they're not making a principled stand against government. They're making a stand against government unless they get to do with it, whatever they want to do with it. Um, and I think, again, this is, this is, this is a dangerous situation, even if um, 
like Matt, Matt Gates is a clown. He's a troll. He's an extremist mm-hmm. troll and he's a grifter and a clown. But there's unfortunately no law of nature that says that democracy and functional governments cannot be brought down by such a clown bunch. It, that's unfortunately not how it works. There's a really ironic moment um, after after McCarthy was voted out where Newt Gingrich himself um, says, from my <laughs> position as a longtime Republican activist, they, meaning the the people who voted to oust McCarthy, are traitors. Jesus. He says, all eight of them should be primaried. They should all be driven out of public life, which is a very ironic statement from Newt Gingrich, who authored, among other things, the 1994 GOPAC memo, yeah. which was instructions for all the new freshman Republicans who had taken over the House for the first time in 40 years in 1994. Um uh, the GOPAC memo was was subtitled "How to Talk Like Newt," and it it instructed new Republican freshman t- uh, members to um, use words like "evil" and "traitor" and "enemy" when talking about Democrats. Um, to use dis- use adjectives like "cancerous" and "venomous." Uh, the it was a list of vocabulary words that were extremely vilifying that he suggested everyone now, all Republicans in the House should use when they talk about Democrats. Um, He's part of the reason that we have created this enemies instead of opponents situation in American politics. And, you know, maybe it's more wisdom comes with age or maybe he just doesn't like it when it works against him, but he's now he's mad about it. when he's one of the people that really started this entire process. The nerve on that guy. I mean, <laughs> like, look, very, very, very few people in in American history have done, in, in recent American history, have done more than Newt Gingrich to put the Republican Party on this path and, and really accelerate these tendencies. They're not, he didn't like invent them, but but he, he very much accelerated them and exacerbated them. And he bears more responsibility than almost anyone for this trend of Republican elites having been all too willing to fuel this radicalization, always trying to harness and sort of control the far-right populist, if you want to call them that, energies on the base. And again, as a result, incoming classes of Republican lawmakers have always displayed an ever greater lust for Mm -hmm. just recklessness. Um, And it's always resulted in chaos and drama. And I think what's important now, and and you you already mentioned, like the the guy who seems to be emerging from this chaos is, is Steve Scalise. And I think what that is a reminder of is that chaos in the Republican Party, unfortunately, always leads to more a more radical position coming out on top, right? Because in, in a vacuum, you could say, oh, like maybe they look at the chaos and they think, oh, wait a minute, that's not great. Maybe we should take two steps back and take a deep breath. But that never happens. That never happens. Like what, what happens is there's chaos and in this all this nonsense happens and then they they radicalize further right and i think um that is the problem here this this never leads to them taking a, a long hard look in the mirror and maybe looking at oh maybe maybe this is not a good path no they they go faster which by the way i think is interesting because that's that's how every authoritarian movement in history has operated right so um it, that's that's generally sort of what happens with these there's always permission to escalate and to radicalize and hardly ever to sort of restrain and, and moderate because usually these types of authoritarian, authoritarian leaning movements, they, they lust for purity. And if something goes wrong, if something doesn't work quite the way they, they want to, they put the blame on 
not enough purity. Like you, that's probably we have because we have traders in our own midst and collaborators, and they and then so they purge those and they go faster, right? And this is what's happening here, and so we end up with Steve Scalise, which is yeah. that's not great. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I mean, I think that it's it's also important to note that like that this is this is also connected to these media critiques where. Yeah. The you know when there is chaos, the media looks for the chaos makers. They don't look for the people who are trying to keep things calm and 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 listen to the opinions of people who say, "This is beyond the pale. We this is too far. We can't have people participating in government in this way. This is you know this is this is not an adult way to do things because that's boring, right? Like yeah. it's boring to have somebody say, "Well, we should all behave." Um, <laughs> media is not going to cover that. They're going to cover the person who's throwing the bombs. And, and it's, this is, it's very resonant with something I've thought about a lot lately in terms of Trump support. Um, and, and even, you can even see this in Trump rallies where it feels like, um, the kids have taken over the school, you know, <laughs> like there's no more principal, the teachers are not in charge anymore and the kids just run rampant. And there's a glee in that, you know, there's like a great joy in trans, the transgressiveness yeah. Yes, of that absolutely. type of of behavior and you what you see from a lot of Trump supporters is this almost glee honestly right it's a yeah. it's a it, there's anger but there's also joy there's deep deep joy no, absolutely. in yeah. in in breaking these rules in in causing harm to others in making other people suffer um because that's against the rules too and and so the you know i, I think that one of the things that the Gingrich is is lamenting now is saying like, but wait, the the adults are supposed to be in charge. You know, like I, I I agree that you guys could could like run around and like swear at the teachers and like throw things and, but you gotta at the very least there needs to be a principal. You know, like yeah. you gotta have somebody in charge of this school, yeah. and it's a. It, there's no way to to bring the students back into control once all authority has been vacated and yeah. and all of the rules have been broken and that's where we're seeing the Republican party right now yeah um i want to just quickly because we've mentioned i think steve scalise now three times and we we have to at least um you know, if, if people are not maybe aware who that is, or i just want to say that is the guy who um allegedly i should say referred to himself as David Duke without the baggage, um, which is to sort of unpack that a little bit. Like um, historian Larry Glickman did a really nice job looking into like, what does that even mean, David Duke without the baggage when when he said this? So it's interesting. He's from Louisiana, um, Steve Scalise, and, and he um, definitely, that's a step further to the right in terms of speakers of the house. Um, and he, again, he has a long history of, sort of white nationalist uh, leanings and politics and again, ideological leanings. And again, famously, he, he called himself that David Duke without the David Duke, of course, being a former Grand Wizard of the KKK and arguably one of the most, maybe maybe the most, uh, so currently the most famous, infamous uh, white supremacist in in America. So importantly, um, Steve Scalise did not invent this phrase. So again, I'm going off what what historian Larry Glickman uh, wrote on uh, on his social media. This was a phrase that by the early 90s in Louisiana had already been established as a sort of specific and a very successful political strategy, as a path that you could take in politics. You can present yourself as David Duke without the baggage. And crucially, that is not meant as uh, uh, sort of, that's, that's not like, it doesn't mean 
you're not criticizing the racism of David Duke, right? But you're, what you're saying is, as a political project, this means David Duke, you, you take the white supremacy, but in a more attractive packaging that doesn't strike people as quite so crass, right? That doesn't turn off people quite as much as David Duke himself. So if you, in that context, if that in that context, if, if that's of the established meaning of that phrase, and then you refer to yourself as that affirmatively, I am that guy who will... Uh, pursue that political project, only I'm not quite as obviously with a white hood on. It, that's not great, right? We we ideally wouldn't want someone in this extremely, extremely powerful position of, of Speaker of the House who, again, brings that sort of baggage. He also just recently confirmed, or one of his advisors confirmed, that he did speak at an event founded by David Duke, David Duke in 2002, but he says that he was not aware that the event was affiliated with racists and neo-Nazis. Well, I'm not sure how you talk at a David Duke event without knowing that. But that's I what mean, he's claiming. Again, like, there's no plausible deniability here. <laughs> that guy is exactly who it looks like he is, right? It's just, you know. Um, and in that sense, there was this stupid, um, generally stupid, I thought, uh, discourse over, oh, the Democrats, should they have saved McCarthy? And I think generally the answer is no. Um, like, that would have been entirely unprecedented. Like, it's not up to the Democratic Party to to save uh, the, the Republican speaker and make, make him not look, make this not look like the kind of, uh, chaos show that it is. Um, but it is true that ultimately, as, as the ultimate outcome of all of this, we might get to a worse place than before, right? That's that's absolutely true. And I think, you know what, it's, it is interesting that this reminded me of how weak American parties actually are in the sense that there's very strong partisanship, but as, as parties, right, they're not there's a there's there's evidently no way of controlling these just a group group of backbenchers like and they're continually staging a coup against against the party right it, it's and why can't they do that because like someone like Matt Gates he can raise money on his own he can get all the attention he wants he has a direct through social media and whatever he has a direct sort of uh, line to the base he's not dependent on party funding so there's just no way to discipline him right so th- th- that's actually. Again, like I'm, I'm thinking about uh, survey so the German party system in which there, there's there, there's ways, including very much financial ways, to control people like that because you would just cut them off from party funding, and that doesn't work because you need party funding in German politics. Otherwise, you're not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And this is not the case here. So it's interesting how even structurally, it, it, this is a it's a really difficult situation in which these parties just don't have they don't have a like a clear path to to sort of disciplining these people well the republican party is uniquely weak yeah um there there's been a lot of evidence over the last few years the democratic party still has some power yeah 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 uh in in you know guiding nomination processes or in uh in, in even hakeem jeffries right telling his yeah. telling democrats in congress just like don't vote for this and they all did what he said um so it, it, the, the party weakness, and this is the Julia Azari, the, the Marquette political scientist um, phrase that we have, you know, weak parties and strong partisanship, yes. which I do think is an accurate description. But I think it's much more descriptive of Republicans um, because they just there doesn't seem to be anybody there who can pull these people together and yep. get them to all agree on something. They're all out for themselves. They're all interested in chaos, or a lot of them are interested in chaos. They aren't. They're not excited about the the hard work of governing. That's not why they 
ran for office in the first place. They didn't run for office in order to be public servants. <laughs> they ran for office in order to be famous. And 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 you be, and understanding that you get that way in the Republican Party by making loud noises and potentially shutting down government altogether. Um, and I think you're right that you know it, <laughs> without McCarthy as a speaker, it is very likely that no one will be speaker. Um, it was very difficult to get him in there in the first place, and it required a lot of compromises on his part, which ultimately were the seeds of his undoing later. But it's going to be really hard to find um, anyone who will get the votes of of the of the of sufficient number of Republicans, and then we'll be able to even govern them. You know, I mean, who's to say even if we get a, a speaker that that person won't be immediately kicked out after that? Because there is no sense of of teamwork. There's no sense of compromise. There's no sense within the Republican Party that we ha- all have a similar goal. You know, they're just they're they're allowing their most childish members to do whatever they want and and undermine the governability of this country. And so ultimately, I mean, I, I am quite worried that the next the next time we have to deal with a with a. Uh, government shutdown, it will just shut down. And I don't know how it will open again, because we may still not have a Speaker of the House. That's So mid, mid-November is, I think, when the, uh, <clears throat> when you know, th- this something- Just in time for the holidays. Shut yeah, down just government, in just in time for the exactly. holidays. Th- that's when something would have to happen, right? Um, and yeah, it, it's, 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 not looking, it's not looking great. I think one last aspect I, I do think we need to touch on is the role of the media in all of this, because I think mm-hmm. some of this, some of this- chaos we see is some of the the role that these um sort of extremist trolls play wouldn't quite work so well if it weren't for some distortions in in the way this is being covered there's there have been two tropes or recurring themes in sort of the political discourse and sort of political punditry that that I, i'm really i'm so tired of and i know we've been discussing this for so many years now but it's it never changes the one 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 is um, oh, this is ultimately the Democrats' fault, right? So it's it's actually the Democrats that sort of plunged America into chaos. And, and that is really a dogma that is widely shared, not just on the right, but also pervasive in sort of the you know, center, centrist political discourse. Whatever happens, it's ultimately, ultimately uh, the Democrats or people on the left are to blame. Um, this is, this the idea basically is that only Democrats or the left ever have agency and so only, so only they can be blamed. Um, and on the right, you see this basically saying, oh, you made us do it or you didn't stop us from doing it, which is sort of abusive logic, right? Um, mm-hmm. This is completely disingenuous and it's also n- nonsensical, diagnostically speaking. So, so that's one thing. And the other thing is this whole Washington dysfunction thing, right? So you look at the situation and it's clearly the chaos is in one side of the house. The chaos is in the Republican Party. And yet you look at the New York Times the next day and the headline is dysfunction in Washington. Um, That is so pervasive. Like Peter Baker in the New York Times might just be the absolute worst at this. Um, That that man just exists to find ways to make it all about dysfunction um, or whatever. And I think this, again, the dysfunction trope is... It's it's so willfully obtuse and and entirely misleading. There's no, there seems to be no level of sabotage from Republicans that political journalists won't immediately press into this dysfunction in Washington framework. And I think it's bad because it's, I mean that 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 makes Republican this sort of 
Republicans almost have a pervasive superpower that comes from this. They, they, they make functional governments in Washington impossible. And then they turn around and tell the American people, see, we told you Washington is bad. Government doesn't work. And again, this strategy, which has morphed into a perverse superpower, it only works with the help of mainstream media constantly playing up this idea of dysfunction in Washington. This trope is so... It is so not helpful. It is, it's, it's, it's really causing harm. And I just wish people would stop using that. It's, it's almost also, it seems like if there was like a real adult in, in the Republican Party, this should offend them, right? This is no. like, this is the soft bigot bigotry of low expectations <laughs> applied to the Republican Party, where the reason that people say the Democrats have to deal with this is because they don't no. trust Republicans to deal with it because yes. they just, they're a lost cause. They're just, they're acting like children. Yes. We can't get them to do anything. Uh, there's, uh, we have zero expectations of them to function as a human being in our government. And so the only people that we can trust to fix this is the the party that has adults in it. And so we're not going to even ask Republicans anymore to help, to help yeah. make sure our government is functioning. We're yeah. going to admit that we've lost them. We're admitting that they are untrustworthy, that we cannot rely on them, that they don't behave in a mature and responsible way. And instead, we're going to turn to the Democrats and say, how are you going to fix yeah. what they're constantly breaking? Yeah. And it's it, it, if you come at it from like a mature conservative point of view, that should be a, a, an offensive thing that we don't trust anybody in their party to actually like fix things and make government function at a minimal level. Um, but our media have given up. It's clear that they've given up on asking Republicans to participate in our democracy in a responsible way. They're not asking that of them anymore. They've just given up on that. I think it's I think it's worse than just giving up because on the one hand I think they they are actively gravitating towards these kinds of towards describing the political situation that way especially sort of the dysfunction trope because it allows them to stay quote unquote neutral it blames mm -hmm. both yeah. sides and like yeah. again you don't have to you don't make yourself seem so partisan by blaming it on the Republicans you say oh, it's dysfunction and then both sides are to blame and you you can you can feel good about being quote unquote neutral, neutral. the the other thing is I saw this on social media and I, I apologize to the person who said it I think it's a great point um, so it's not my point but I, I, I want to sort of bring it up here um, and I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can find it someone said there is a very sort of gendered way in 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 which sort of we look at the parties and it's almost like the Republican Party is the kind of man-child husband who just can't be expected to like he's you know, he's acting out and he gets drunk and he's making a mess and whatever and then the, the wife cleans up is 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 expected like that's the expectation the expectation is okay but you have to keep it together you have to be the reasonable one and you mm. have to behave and like that sort of thing right it's the beer just, bottles are on the floor because she didn't pick them up exactly right right like what well, why did you not like you have to make sure he looks okay and he looks properly dressed and whatever and, and and get the kids to school and like clean up the mess and and i think that there's there's really something to this that that when i saw it it made a lot of sense to me um whoever again yeah. brought this up and again i think ultimately this this leaves us in a this is bad for the country like this is like no no level of snark or schadenfreude or what, whatever you want to call is changes the fact that this is bad for the country like not having a functioning government is not good it's not like there aren't urgent tasks that needed that that would need the full attention of you know this country's the people who are elected to you know take care of 
deep these challenges and and that's not happening and that's not great for the country no we can't have we can't have a functioning government where one of our two political parties is behaving like you know babies and bullies and and divas <laughs> that's not some bullies and divas <laughs> that's not a good coalition we we joked before we done. before we started recording we joked about maybe maybe like a lot of times the podcast could could just be called what a party on the Republican Party. Should, and I think the subtitle, <laughs> the subtitle is great. What a party. Babies, what do you say? Babies, Babies bullies, bullies and, divas? and divas. Fantastic. That's a great podcast. Um, we, we, that's going to be, don't, don't, don't start a podcast a with spin, that title. That's off. our title. Um, <laughs> we'll have to leave it there. I mean, it's good to be back. Once again, the plan going forward, every other week, Lily and I will come on with the quote unquote regular podcast. And then in the weeks in between, as often as it is feasible, we want to present guest conversations. The plan is to do at least one of those per month. And overall, that should get you so two regular podcasts again every other week and plus at least one bonus guest conversation maybe per month um if you want to keep up with the podcast the best way to do that is to follow the podcast follow us on social media we'll definitely have all the updates there or better yet subscribe to is this democracy on the podcast player of your choice i'm suspecting that we'll have a little bit of work to do to remind people that the podcast exists after such a long break and also because you know Twitter or whatever it's now um, simply doesn't work anymore as a platform <laughs> for independent work due to the deliberate right-wing sabotage. And it's it's generally, um, that's generally made it much more difficult to reach out to people, find people, find an audience for, again, independent work. And so we now, more than ever, I think, depend on your help. If you want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave us a rating or a review. These ratings, these reviews, they really help us tremendously. They help us let the world know that the podcast exists and also again um please tell people via social media or around you in your actual everyday life uh, about is this democracy if you have any feedback please email us at is this democracy at gmail.com and i think that's about it i want to say thank you as always to our producer connor lynch who is making all this good stuff happen and we will be back soon bye-bye